Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. So in recent headlines, last Monday, President Joe Biden finally formally raised the United States cap on refugee admissions up to 62500 for the current fiscal year. Now, President Biden had made many promises during his campaign, and again in the month of February, right after he took office, that he would raise the refugee resettlement numbers from the historically low cap of 15,000, which was set by President Trump last year. As Biden said, and I couldn't agree more, that low number, quote, did not reflect America's values as a nation that welcomes and supports refugees. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about refugees on this episode of All Things. So on the one hand, this headline, what what Biden did, this was great news. It brought us hope. There was hope on the horizon that the U.S. would be able to start admitting uh, fully vetted refugees once again, that we'd be able to welcome in more refugees. On the other hand, though, Biden's announcement was pretty late in coming, and some really unfortunate scenarios had already played out around the world as a result of that. So between Inauguration Day, his Inauguration Day in January, and early May, refugee resettlement agencies had prepared 714 fully vetted refugees. And we're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about what refugees are and what it means for them to be fully vetted. But there were 714 of them around the world that were ready to go. They had been fully prepared. Their backgrounds had been meticulously checked. Their medical checkups were done. Their final COVID screens were done. Plane tickets had been purchased. And they had family members and people here in the United States ready and waiting with apartments rented new lives prepared. And then the days just continued to tick by and Biden hadn't done what he had promised in terms of raising that refugee ceiling. So things it was a long delay from Inauguration Day to this announcement last week in May, and everything that had been prepared for these at least 714 refugees had to be canceled. People's hearts were broken as they had to wait. So while Biden had promised to raise that number and he hadn't, the refugees could not enter the United States. They were they were ready to, but their trips were canceled and their relatives were devastated and refugees were literally left in camps around the world waiting on the United States to increase this specific number. Now, Biden has not really been... Um, he hasn't really said exactly why he waffled, why he made those promises and then didn't deliver right away. But analysts and those who work in immigration imagine that it had something to do with the crisis at our southern border, that there's this conflation between the immigration crisis happening here in the southern United States with refugees around the world. And this really reflects a huge misunderstanding in the United States amongst both our citizens, as well as our politicians, as well as the media. There's this false understanding of who refugees are. We look at the southern border and people around the United States think, man, those are refugees. We can't possibly let all those people in. We don't even know who they are. So on this episode, I want to talk about who refugees actually are because they are a distinct community. They are extremely unique and the American public needs to know that. Refugees do not make up this sort of like chaotic and threatening group of people who are demanding entrance or sneaking into the United States. They actually make up what I want to show you in this episode, a very safe and helpful 
population. Now, I know the immigration issue is very politically charged. You know, we see footage of refugees fleeing, you know, Latin America, fleeing North Africa on boats, walking across Europe, walking across Central America. We see the footage of refugee camps. We see the footage of these massive groups of people. And we get this idea, I think, from these images that we see that refugees are somehow undesirable, that they are impoverished criminals, that they're uneducated. We've got all of these um, false notions of who the refugee population is. So I want to specifically look at them and help every listener to all things have a clear understanding of who makes up this population. Because my hope is that as we have a better understanding, our opinions will be shaped by what's true. The church's opinions will be shaped by what's true. Community opinions will change. And really the whole globe will change as we have a better understanding. So as we move forward, I want to first just share a couple of experiences that I have personally had with refugees, because I feel like this topic, this conversation can really just take on um, a very sterile quality. We can forget that there are actual human beings made in the image of God, husbands, wives, daughters, sons, friends, family, grandmothers, you know, that's who refugees are. And I feel like sometimes we just take on these numbers, these millions of numbers, and we forget that there's real people. So I just want to share a couple scenarios just to share from my own life. So first, of all, about 20 years ago when Mark and I, before we went overseas, I was serving as a grant writer in um, Denver. And one organization that I served was an organization that was helping to resettle refugees from Sudan who had made their way to Denver, Colorado. And so I spent a lot of time in one of Denver's poorest neighborhoods with some men who had come here to Denver as refugees from Sudan. These men were things like engineers and attorneys. Even one was a mayor in his hometown in Sudan. And it was just striking to hear what they had come from the background, the education, what they had had in Sudan, and then how that was taken away from them because of great conflict and terrible violence. And now here they were in the United States living together in in a small apartment, working menial jobs because their education and their work experience didn't translate. But these men were trying to help other refugees. They were trying to bring their families over, their friends over, friends who were architects and teachers, bring them from Sudan to Denver so that they could resettle here in peace and stability and security. Of course, when my family lived in Europe, we actually happened to live there during the great migration crisis that sort of started in 2015. But when we lived in the Czech Republic, we we befriended a man who was a refugee from Afghanistan and he had married a Czech woman. And it was so fun to get to know this young couple as they were starting their lives together. He was a small business owner. They were really making their way as a young family. They um, had a baby while they were, um, while we lived there and, and they recently had another baby. So that was an example of a refugee in Europe from Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Um, and then more recently here in Denver, back um, you know a couple years ago after we had moved back here, another family in our church partnered with us as we pursued working with the African Community Center. And they matched us up with a family from Somalia. Now, this family had fled violence in Somalia many years ago, and they had actually lived in a refugee camp in Kenya for seven years. And the mom was alone with her children. I think she, I think she was here with five kids. And I don't really know what happened to her husband 
husband to the father of these children, one of her children was born in the refugee camp. So that's the only life that that child had known. But here they were in Denver. They had finally been brought from Kenya and resettled in Denver. They lived in this teeny little two-bedroom apartment. And um, my family and this other family from my church, we just would go over there and visit them and take them snacks and take board games and just try to communicate with them and help them feel like they were welcomed and could be at home here in Colorado. But just seeing her struggles, like the the impossibility that it was for her to communicate with her landlord to like get her her heat fixed when it was broken and helping her kids integrate into school, you know, it really just gave me opened my eyes to what it would what life is like for refugees as they resettle here. So those are just a few touch points in my own life as I have experienced um, what refugees see when they come here and how what life is like for them as they try to resettle. So anyway, back to the headline from last week. So President Biden raised the refugee ceiling from 15,000 to 62,500. So let's start this conversation off by wondering, by, by addressing what is a refugee, because there's actually a legal and specific definition. Refugees are defined by and protected by international law. The 1951 Refugee Convention adopted by the United Nations General Assembly is a key legal document, and it defines a refugee as this. This is the the legal definition, quote, someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. So refugees are people who have fled war, they fled violence, conflict, persecution, they've crossed an international border, so they've fled their home country to find safety in another country. And the United Nations um, estimates that there are currently more than 79 million people across the globe who are refugees, meaning they were they are currently forcibly displaced because of a crisis happening in their home country. So honestly, and literally, this is the largest humanitarian crisis the world has ever seen. Here are the top 10 countries where refugees currently come from right now. Burundi, Eritrea, Central African Republic, Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia, and then the Rohingya refugees, they come from Myanmar, South Sudan, Afghanistan, and over 25% of the total global refugee population comes from Syria. It's the diaspora of Syria in the wake of the 10-year crisis that they've had there. So all of those countries that I listed, refugees go to neighboring countries. Like for example, Afghan refugees are settling in neighboring Pakistan or Iran, or Syrian refugees tend to settle or seek refuge primarily in Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, Turkey. Okay, so people People who are born into these countries, and I just listed the top 10, but they are born into these places that have incredible conflict where there's civil war, where there's persecution, where perhaps religious groups or certain um, ethnicities are enduring violence. And so they flee, they run away from their homes into a neighboring country just to live another day, to try to protect their children, to try to, to live longer. They leave the conflict. And many know that they are very likely to die while fleeing, but they say it's a better prospect than staying. So really kind of the foundation of this conversation for us, especially as we who try to interpret current events through scripture and understand how we should respond as Christians, is the reality is that they were born into this existence 
existence. They didn't somehow misbehave or commit a crime or earn their status as refugees. They were born into it. And you and I also were born into our current context. For those of us who are American or who are wealthy Westerners, and the vast majority of us in the West are in fact wealthy, speaking globally, we were born into this. And so my question for you and for me is how are we going to steward that? Because the truth is without some kind of humanitarian aid, the vast majority of those 79 million displaced people are going to remain displaced for 10 years or more. If somebody doesn't intervene, if help is not brought to them in some way, they are going to remain homeless and without help for 10 years. So Let's talk about now what the United States process is for admitting refugees. So when Biden said, okay, I'm going to raise the ceiling, like, what does that mean? Um, What goes on when the United States receives refugees? So in 1980, we passed the Refugee Act. And since then, the United States has admitted more than 3.1 million refugees in that time. So here's what it looks like if you're a refugee who ultimately ends up coming to the United States. Here's what the process looks like. First, you flee your home country and you you find settlement in a nearby nation where you live in a refugee camp. And you must register at that time in the refugee camp with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR. So the UNHCR then conducts an in-depth assessment and a background check on you and your family. And only those who pass that screening and have been determined to be among the most vulnerable and not at all a security risk are then referred to possibly being resettled in the United States. So that's the first step. Second step is we have these things called resettlement support centers all around the world. They're funded by the United States government and they conduct a pre-screen of all refugees who are applying for resettlement. During that phase, then they have like a case file that's opened for each refugee. In stage three, United States security agencies, so like the Department of Homeland Security, for example, many there's actually four United States security agencies that screen these candidates. They conduct biographic security checks, and they have these enhanced interagency checks, so they really do a deep dive. Stage four is specially trained officers with the Department of Homeland Security, the Office of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services conduct in-depth, in-person interviews, and they collect fingerprints from these refugees. Okay, that's the fourth stage. Now stage five, the United States conducts meticulous security screenings, which include biographic and identity investigations, FBI biometric checks, fingerprints, photographs, medical screenings, and then there's other checks done by U.S. domestic and international intelligence agencies, including the National Counterterrorism Center, the intelligence community, and the FBI. And then refugees from some countries like Iraq, Syria, they undergo additional review through the security advisory opinion process. Okay, so that's five stages of security screenings. These take at least a year, usually more like 18 months or a couple years. So a refugee is, you know, registers with the UN and lives in the camp while this extensive screening takes place. The final stage, stage six, step six is that the applicants then attend cultural orientation classes to help them prepare for adjusting to life in the United States. And refugees are assigned to a resettlement agency who helps them determine where in the United States they're going to go. And they 
they begin to prepare them and assist them with their transition from their refugee camp to the United States. So you can see that this process is incredibly in-depth. And any refugee with any hint of a possibility that they might cause harm in the United States, they get denied. In fact, less than 1% of refugees are ever referred for third country settlement. And there's 37 countries that resettle refugees. So we're just one of them. So it's an extremely tiny percentage of refugees around the world that actually end up coming to the United States. Okay, so how safe are refugees? You can see that the screening is crazy in depth, but there are so many other studies that help us understand just how safe the refugee population is. So a book that I love that I recommend all the time, you've probably heard me say it before, is Welcoming the Stranger. It's by World Relief um, the President Matthew Sorens and Jenny Yang. Um, I mentioned them in episode 52 about immigration reform. So in that book, they, um, they quote an, an, an analysis that was done by the Cato Institute of all terrorist attacks since 1975. That study found that the odds of an American being killed by a terrorist attack perpetuated by a foreigner, including 9-11, are, is the, the likelihood is 1 in 3.6 million annually. The odds of being killed by a terrorist who came to the United States as a refugee or who is in the United States illegally is even smaller than that. It's 1.36 billion or 1 in 10.9 billion respectively per year. So just to put that into perspective for you, the average American is about 400 times more likely to die from being bitten by a dog or more than 400,000 times more likely to die in a car accident than by a refugee turned terrorist. So the level of collective fear over the possibility of an immigrant fueled terrorism or a refugee becoming a terrorist is dramatically inflated. We have just some crazy ideas that are not true. They are not founded. In fact, not a single refugee of the more than 3 million admitted since 1990, since 1980 has killed an American in a terrorist attack. Not one, not ever. So our thorough vetting process has really protected the United States from anybody who might seek to abuse that process. People are just not, terrorists are not going to come in. Criminals are not going to come in the United States through the refugee resettlement program. Okay, so moving on, the new economy, the new American economy, sorry, that's a bipartisan research and advocacy organization. They conducted a study in 2017 to see if there is a link between refugee resettlement and crime in cities which receive the highest numbers of refugees. So they wanted to examine crime data from these U.S. cities most impacted by refugee resettlement. So they looked at the years between 2006 and 2015. So listen to these results. All of the cities, including the smallest ones, accepted roughly 2,000 or more refugees during that time period. These refugees were from a range of countries, including Burma, Somalia, and Iraq. According to the New American Economy website, which I will link in the show notes, rather than crime increasing, nine out of 10 of the communities actually became considerably safer, both in terms of their levels of violent and property crime. This includes places like Southfield, Michigan, a community just outside of Detroit where violent crime dropped by 77.1%. 
another place, Decatur, Georgia, a community outside Atlanta, experienced a 62.2% decline in violent crime during the same period of time when they received refugees. There was one city in the study, West Springfield, Massachusetts, that saw an increase in crime between 2006 and 2015, and that city and its surrounding area was also impacted by another trend that swept across many parts of America during that time period, the ravaging opioid epidemic. So that's what was going on there. So what I really want to get across to my All Things listeners is that refugees are a safe and special population, and they deserve our attention and care. So I think really Biden delayed raising the number, raising that ceiling of the number of refugees that we could resettle because of the immigration crisis on our southern border. I think his thinking was, you know, the American population doesn't really know the difference. People are worried about these undocumented immigrants, these unaccompanied children on our border, and they equate that group of people with the population of refugees around the world. And so I think his thinking was like, I just can't do both. If I say I'm raising the ceiling for refugees, people are going to equate that with the border at the crisis. But the result was then 714 fully vetted refugees could not come here. You know, there were husbands and wives who who could not reunite because Biden waited for a couple months in raising that ceiling. I'm so thankful he raised the number, and this is something that we can really get behind President Biden on. Um, it's something that we can really support his administration. As Christians, we can applaud this move. And my hope is that, of course, these hundreds of refugees, their situations will improve quickly. They'll be able to rebook those pli- those those flights, they'll be able to come here quickly um, as they, you know, reunite with their loved ones. There was one I, uh, when I was listening to a number of podcasts on this issue this week, of course, all of this is linked in the show notes, but there was one couple that I read about who, or listened about, they were Christians from Pakistan, both of them tortured for their faith. The wife was able to escape and ended up being resettled here. She's been waiting for her husband to make it here for years. He's been waiting in a refugee camp in Sri Lanka, and he should have come in early May. Ticket bought, plans made based on Biden's um, words back in February that just didn't come to fruition. And so they're still waiting to reunite. But I just think of this you know, precious couple in Christ desiring so badly to be reunited here in the United States. Okay, so now we've got this number, 62,500 for this fiscal year. And our fiscal year ends on September 30th. So we're not going to get to that number. We're nowhere near resettling 62,500 refugees. But having that number in place will help the United States to get ready to reach more refugees next year. Because these resettlement agencies, they've got to hire staff. They've got to prepare. They've got to get ready all around the globe to help move refugees here. So it's good that the number's increased because it's going to help us get ready for what's going on next year. So I wanted to give you guys an idea of the numbers from years past. If it's 62,500 this year, well, what have numbers looked like in the past since 1980? Because that number is set by the number of persons who can be admitted to the United States as refugees each year is established by the president. He's who decides. So in the first year of refugee resettlement in 1980, the ceiling was set at, get this, 231,700. And in that first year, we admitted 207 
and 116, 207,116 refugees. So since then, the ceiling and the actual number of admissions has really fluctuated. Um, there will be some charts in the show notes, but admissions were very low after 9-11, understandably, because we really wanted to vet refugees after that. But they've never been as low as under the Trump administration. You may recall that a huge part of President Trump's election campaign was founded on increasing fear of immigrants and his promises to build walls and rid the United States of violent immigrants and refugees. So in fiscal year 2016, the U.S. admitted 85,000 refugees. Then that went down to 54,000 refugees. Then that went down to 45,000 refugees. Then in 2019, it went down to 30,000 refugees. In fiscal year 2020, the administration further cut the number to 18,000 only resettled 11,000. And then in September of 2020, the Trump administration um, proposed that we only accept 15,000 refugees for admission. So you compare that to that first number of over 231,000 and you realize, man, we have really drifted far from the vision and the ideal of this refugee resettlement program. We should really be advocating for and, and desiring to get back to that those higher numbers from years past. So obviously, it's important that Americans and citizens of any nation do their due diligence to keep our country safe, right? Like, we we want to make sure that we're not promoting terrorism or promoting evil, promoting violence in any way by resettling refugees amongst us who won't, wouldn't be safe. But what we see here clearly is that our refugee resettlement program is extremely successful in ensuring our safety. And we can be extremely supportive of the Biden administration and encouraging them to increase that number more and more every year. I think that Christians especially need to advocate for and promote refugee resettlement for a number of reasons. First, welcoming refugees is important for maintaining religious liberty. That is a value of ours as followers of Christ. The United States has admitted far more Christian refugees than Muslim refugees in recent years. In fact, Christians have accounted for 79% of refugees who came into the U.S. in fiscal year 2019. Since fiscal year 2002, the U.S. has admitted about 464,700 Christian refugees and about 310,700 Muslim refugees. So we really have prioritized as a nation receiving Christians who are persecuted around the globe. That's why it's not good. It's not good for the church when this refugee ceiling is lowered, because that means our brothers and sisters in Christ are languishing around around the world. For we who prize religious liberty um, and who desire to alleviate persecution that Christians face all around the world, it follows that we would be eager to make a way for them then to seek refuge here. You know, the United States has a long history of welcoming refugees, those who are flee persecution, those who are fleeing violence. And for years, we have actually been the top country for refugee admissions. We have excelled in this area. This is worth our support. It's worth our celebration. It's worth our voices. It's important that we make clear to the Biden administration that we want this ceiling to continue going up. And you know, it's not that the United States need to go it alone. We, our nation is not responsible for welcoming in the entire world's population of refugees, but we've always been a place that has welcomed vulnerable people, right? That's our identity. That's who we are as a country. We've always been a place that proclaims to provide peace to those who have had to flee persecution. So let's keep doing that. 
Secondly, welcoming refugees is an important way that the United States can stand up for democracy in an age of rising dictators. Now, you've heard me talk about the increase in persecution and human rights atrocities in China, for example, recent All Things episodes about that. You know, world powers are watching. They want to know who are we as the United States? What do we really stand for? Are we really a democracy? Will we oppose dictators and will we welcome in those that they have abused? Third, welcoming refugees is good for America. It really is. I mean, just think of that study of those 10 cities that welcomed in high populations of refugees. It was good for those cities. There's a recent article on the website Providence that I'm going to link, but it says this, refugees enrich our communities contrary to the demagoguery that undermines public empathy for them. The resettlement program has enabled remarkable talents to become Americans and pursue the American dream, such as Vietnamese refugee David Tran, who created the popular Sriracha hot sauce after resettling in the United States. I had no idea until today about that reality. So that's just one example. But think of so many others like the Sudanese refugees that I met 20 years ago. I mean, incredibly educated, talented, capable people with an amazing worldview. They've seen amazing things around the world. They bring a lot to the table. There is, there's talent, education, and experience that we should be welcoming in. Refugees are good for America. And not only that, but we have room. We are far away from being an overpopulated nation. Just last week, there were headlines here in the United States that the United States birth rate is so low, the nation is below replacement levels, meaning more people are dying every day than are being born. So the truth is we need more immigrants. We need more refugees to replace the population that we currently have. Inviting refugees is a really good and really safe way to build our population. So what can you do? Hopefully this episode has convinced you that refugees are a special and unique population who deserve our attention and deserve our advocacy. So some things that you can do tangibly, you can write a letter to President Biden, Um, go to the White House website and find out how you can contact him. He's the one who sets the ceiling. So let the Biden administration know that this matters to you, that you're educated, that you know who the refugee population is, and you want to see that population increase. Another thing you can do, a friend actually messaged me about this today. You can go on mission trips to places, for example, um, like Italy, where a ton of refugees come from North Africa, and you can work with organizations that are already there. Now, that's what I would always recommend as someone who comes from the world of missions. You want to be partnering with a local church and a local organization who's on the ground who knows the local nationals and can provide holistic help for the long term. You don't want to just go in and drop support that's not really helpful, but you can go in and partner with these long-term organizations and give fresh energy, fresh enthusiasm, bring supplies, bring finances, bring prayer, and just help those Christians who are on the ground for the long haul um, for a week, a month, a year, whatever, to um, just infuse new energy into the hard work and you know help them to persevere. So Something you can do right now from your own home is you can visit worldrelief.org. World Relief is an awesome organization. I highly recommend it to you. It's a Christian organization that works around the world. They have a number of ways that you can get your whole church involved in helping the refugee community in your area. They also have ways that you as a family or you as an individual can pray for and financially support refugees who remain in camps around the world. There's the, you know ways you can get involved in paying for things like trauma support, schooling, healthcare, those sorts of things that refugees need in the camps where they are currently at. 
I would encourage you to just Google your own city for refugee resettlement work. Find out what's going on. A friend of mine in my church here, she just did that a couple weeks ago. She just Googled, you know, like, what can I be doing for refugees here? And she came across an organization called Project Worthmore, projectworthmore.org. That very week, her family ended up delivering groceries to 10 different refugee families in our own community. So you can get involved right away. Um, I think of my mom. She teaches English to women who are refugees, and she teaches sewing. Um, There's an organization in Denver that provides after-school playtime for refugee children. And so my mom teaches their moms English while they're playing. So there's a lot going on. Go ahead and just Google it. Do the research. Find it. I know that this problem, the refugee problem, feels huge. And I also know that it feels very far away, like it's in the distant parts of the world. But as with everything that we talk about on all things, we want to look at the globe. We want to see what's happening. What, what, what are news headlines around the world? What's, what is the Lord doing? Where do people have need? And as we have our eyes on the globe, we also have our eyes on the word of God. And then we just ask him, how can I love my actual neighbors? How can I actually make a difference right here, right now? We don't have to take on the entire global issue. We can go into our own city and offer encouragement and support to one refugee or to one family, or we can do even do it online. If that's all that we um, you know, are capable of in this season of life, that's totally fine. There are ways to do that. You and I do not have to be overwhelmed. We do not have to look away, we can really engage with um, what's going on with refugees around the globe right here and right now. So thank you guys for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.